Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. To those who think that it's autopilot, I think that that's ridiculous. Um, there is a forward guidance which is strong, which is setting you know a, a very clear timetable that is fact dependent. But let's look at the facts. Let's look at how the economy evolves. That, that's what we do. We need to be fact driven. We need to be clear in our communication, and we will be. And I'm saying today, don't assume that it will be on autopilot. Yesterday, you talked quite extensively about negative rates. You said tiering is working well. But is there a point where actually the side effects of negative rates means that you need to scale it back? We will be looking at the side effects uh, as part of the strategy review. There's no question about that. Um, We need to be attentive to that. Financial stability is not our, our, our... first driver of concern and consideration, but we will, we will have to look at it, of course. Yeah. It, it is expand- and we need, don't forget that we need to have a banking sector in the euro area that acts as a good channel of transmission. Which means that, which means what, that you could extend tiering or? The multiple responses. <laughs> it's not, as I said yesterday, we're not considering that at the moment. Um, President Trump left Davos saying that actually he's still thinking about possible tariffs uh, against Germany and Europe in general. You're seeing, uh, you know, growth in Europe. How do you match up the two? We're saying modest growth in Europe. Huh? Uh, we're saying a bit more modest downside risks as well. So that's probably the reason why it's, it's kind of slightly balanced to the upside, but very slightly. Um, you know, we, we, we shall see. What, what I was pleased about is to see that there had been a good first meeting between uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, President of the European Commission, and President Trump. So that's, that's you know, it's better to start off on, on, on a good footing. And there will be difficult relationships uh, going forward and points of negotiations that will be hard. You know, whether it's trade, whether it's tax, whether it's uh, technology, whether it's energy, the multiple uh, topics. But as, as Ursula said, Europe and the United States have been friends for a long, long time. It, it will not go away. And in many instances, they have joint interests. But Europe is different. Europe operates on different values with different systems. And, uh, and that needs to be secured and preserved for the sake of the Europeans. But are, are tariffs the biggest concern you see for, for the European economy? It's a big concern, let's face it. Um, don't forget that there is trade intra-Europe. And, and that would not indeed be affected. But trade with the United States, which is an important uh, trade partner, uh, would, uh, would be affected if there was a sudden rise on, on, on tariffs, yes. Or a tariff war where, you know, tit for tat, you, you, you tariff me, I'll tariff you. That's going to operate as a break on the economy, for sure. Um, you, you've done a number of public events in the last couple of weeks. What concerns did people raise with you? Um, it, you know, it, it varies. Um, when I talk to uh, when I talk to family members, they say, "Explain what you do, Mom, please." We don't really understand, and that's a real good signal for me that we we need to to communicate in a more explicit way about what we procure. 
um, you know, because if we explain that exactly what we do, it's, it's technically sound. The experts will understand. Family members and uh, the taxi drivers, the hairdressers, and the uh, shopkeepers are not going to understand. But if we explain that what you, we do actually procures growth, facilitates investment, and creates jobs, then it means something. But uh, we should not be the only one to try to do that. So is it reconnecting with the citizens? or I think that's an important factor, yeah. Because, you know, the, the people of, of Europe, particularly the euro area, are quite bullish about the euro. They're pleased to have the euro as their currency. And we do everything we can to make sure that euros can flow easily, that payments are secure, uh, that what they have uh, is, is, is solid stability. Um, but... but Uh, I think we need we need to do a bit more. Um, a lot of the focus here is on sustainability. You talked about sustainability. Yeah. Is there a danger that we have outsized expectations about what central banks can do to tackle this? Possibly, but I think that nonetheless, each and every one of us has to explore what he or she can do about the current risks. And I think that it has been under the risks caused by climate change on corporates, on the economy, on general stability have been largely underestimated. And for good reasons, because many uh, uh, risks are difficult to assess. Uh, we are talking about what happens in 30 years. It's not in the cards of a stress tester to anticipate what happens in 30 years. You know, you look at the immediate future, you, you look at the market risks, you look at macro risks, but the climate risks in 30 years that need action now if we want to remedy those risks, that's difficult. But we need, we need to do it, absolutely. The study of what's available, and that's really one of the great focuses for Christine Lagarde to assist her economists with the tools available given how odd the times are. A perfect person to speak to on this, the limitations, the constraints that we see within economics, finance, and particularly investment is Sheila Patel. She's the Goldman Sachs Asset Management. She is their chairman, and we're thrilled she could join us for what I wish was a four-hour conversation, and we're not going to do that uh, today. I have eight things to talk about and only a few times or two. I need to talk, first of all, about your core obligation to the Goldman Sachs company. Goldman Sachs Asset Management for years has had not a stumble, but a need to be focused. You have had great acclaim for bringing a new focus to Goldman Sachs Asset Management to compete out there. What's the Patel focus for Goldman Sachs asset management. Look, as an investor, your focus, A number one, has to be your client needs. And what I would say we've tried to do is refocus our entire investing team on the questions clients are asking us. What are they asking you right now? They're asking us about ESG and sustainability. They're asking us about what to do in this low-yield environment. And they're asking us how they should think about asset allocation in the broader context of all their stakeholders. What we heard this week in Happy Valley is the arch question of the efficient frontier and asset allocation given low rates. We've got boom bust, and I don't want to get into boom bust with you. Uh, your, your leader, uh, David, was quite, Solomon was quite good on that as well. Forget about that. Forget about, I got to put my money in the market after bonds up, yields down, stocks up, 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 up. Is your answer to buy more Tesla? 
<laughs> well, it doesn't necessarily have to be Tesla, but I would say people have been penalized more for trying to guess when the market would go down than by keeping to a steady core asset allocation, particularly with exposure to equities when you believe that growth is stable. Do we think that growth is growing exponentially, growing, getting better over the next year? No, but do we think the U.S. looks decent, there are hot spots in uh, Europe of both growth and pain, and that we have interesting opportunities in EM, and particularly in Japan, yes. Okay, your charm is you came up on the trading side, on the management side, on what I'm going to call the execution side. This isn't some ivory tower exercise <laughs> for you, even though you've got prodigious academics. From an execution trading side, you're expert in the observance of liquidity. Is the liquidity there in the markets given shocks right now? I would say liquidity is there. We're certainly in a better place than we were a year ago at Davos. A year ago, you had everyone worried about liquidity, extremely worried about where the markets would head, and we were right. counseling harm. And I think today you have people worried about liquidity, given the mix of private to public that they have in their portfolios, mm -hmm. particularly the way that various uh, investors have leaned into things like private credit. Where we see the balance is by making sure that the overall portfolio has the liquidity needed for the needs. That will be different for a pension than a sovereign wealth fund, different for an insurance company. Can I go off script? On a Friday, we could do that with <laughs> Sheila Patel. Portfolio insurance, this is before your time, 1987. Are ETFs the new portfolio insurance? This is beneath you to talk about, I get that. But everybody listening and watching, should they be petrified of the certitude that ETFs are the only way to go? I don't think it's the new portfolio insurance, and I think there's a huge diversification of the options in the ETF markets. They span an incredible number well of Well said. Of it's different, not just long, short, triple yeah, letters. It, it's that. a very, very yeah, broad market. Fair. I think what we have to think about with ETFs is really what is the purpose of having them in your portfolio. Is it the best exposure to a particular index? Is it an area where you just want beta versus alpha? And it goes back to the question of do you want active or passive in certain segments of the mm -hmm. market? I think that's a question that investors need to answer mm -hmm. themselves over and over again. And it's become very binary. We love binaries. It's easier to say choose A or choose B. But the reality is we see a balanced portfolio includes both passive and active, depending on where you think the opportunity okay. set is in an asset class. Unfortunately, last night I was talking about C, D, E, F. I wasn't binary <laughs> last night. Sheila's right. That's a simpler uh, and better world. What we're going to do today is try to give you a recapitulation of the proper theory and foundation of this. Joining us later, Robert Schiller, the laureate of Yale University. And joining us now, someone as acclaimed, Jacob Frankel joins us, chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase International, former governor of the Bank of Israel, and Chicago academic from just a few years ago as well. The uproar here is the sick Cyclicality of markets linked into your world of economics possibly is done and there will be a more leaden, non-volatile trend because central banks have dragged us down to the zero bound. I don't see this in the academic literature. Is it an original idea that needs to be tested? To begin with, it is being tested. And frankly, I think that the zero bound or the driving down on interest rate to zero was emphasized, has been emphasized as the way in which the crisis that emanated 12 years ago 
uh, came to the system, so-called unconventional policies. Yeah. But if we are talking now about a recovery, getting out of it, coming back to normalcy, I think that the zero interest rate has exhausted its benefits, and it's time now to think again how do we come to the highway from this particular detour. The return to the highway in which interest rates are at normal level, in which financial industry can perform well because at the present time, pension systems, insurance, life insurance, even banking have to redesign their business model to accommodate zero interest rates, which makes no sense. I think that at this stage we will need to bring back the other policy instruments. The other policy instruments have to do with fiscal policy, have to do with structural policy. Today, the greatest danger to the economy's growth comes from fragmentation. The world is global, policy making is local. The pressures on policy makers come from domestic pressures. And if you have great fragmentation within economies, you will end up having also great fragmentations between economies and the bridges that are so essential for the functioning oh. of the global economy may be hampered. Your voice is so important, I have to get this on record. If we begin a path to normalcy, do we sustain a leaden, non-volatile state, or do we maintain the normal, historic boom-and-bust cycles that Rogoff and Reinhardt have talked about? Which is it? Is it binomial? Is it bipolar almost? Which is it? It's, no, it's not a law of nature that it will be either or. It depends on the policy. Let me give you an example. Fair. Here the recovery started, and suddenly the trade war came in. Trade war means you break a bridge between important partners. This creates volatility. Then there is a glimpse of hope that this trade war may be settled, at least as phase one. Mm -hmm. Then suddenly the markets like it again. A Martian coming down to Earth will say, hey, we have volatility. But let's understand that volatility is a reflection of the signals mm -hmm. that policymakers give to markets. And in a market in which financial markets are important, that they are growing to be more and more important, that's the market in which expectations about the future right. are transmitting itself to current behavior. So let's be very careful. Words matters, expectations mm -hmm. matters. And if things are still not done, but they are expected to be done, volatility already comes in. To your acclaim on to, on, on the Bank of Israel, and folks, let's make clear here, as we mourn the late Paul Volcker, people talk of Frankel as a Volcker equivalent with the courage of what he did in Israel years ago. You had a toolkit then. Lagarde this morning with Francine talks about tools. Orphanides has written about this authoritatively at the Fed. What's in the toolkit at the zero bound? Well, the toolkit today is much less potent than what it used to be. Which is Bridgewater's point. It's but less point. Absolutely. But it is also not a curse of nature. It is, again, a policy maker making. What do I have in mind? The most important tool in the policy arsenal is interest rate. Of course, you can always speak about macroprudential policies. You can speak about guidance, how to manipulate expectations. You can speak about many things. But let's face it. It is the interest rates that the central bank is setting, which is the uh, 
jewel in the crown of policymaking mm -hmm. arsenal. If, we, if it is being stuck at close to zero, in addition to the damage to the financial industry, it also projects that the monetary authority can do yeah. in the future less than what it did in the past, which is another reason to wake up yeah. the other policy instruments. I think that the only game in town syndrome in which central banks have become too central to the debate right. has to be changed. It's a very, very dubious compliment. The uh, spirited conversation here with Jacob Frankel and some of the themes that we're seeing here from central bankers and particularly from those after a bang up successful 2019. Dr. Frankel, of course, uh, with JP Morgan International, Panels continue, a very important panel uh, this morning on central banking and on Treasury as well. What I like about this panel, it's a mixture of the bankers and the finance officials together and has led to a spirited conversation about the mysteries. Of course, we can summarize that and maybe do better than five or six people talking at once to singularly talk to the gentleman from Mexico. Ano Guria brings first-rate academic economics to his job at the OECD. Uh, as their secretary general, he's held court for some time. And the good news here with Laurence Boone and the other great analysts at the OECD is very simply he can synthesize a lot for us. He takes his sunglasses off now so he can do TV. I, I wore my sunglasses once on set and they said, don't ever do that again. <laughs> Wonderful to have you here. Uh, Thank the, you. The themes are so important. There's QE, there's Boomer Bus, or this or that. You're going to go back to your Laurence Boone and say, this is what I want you to research. What is it? Uh, basically, we have to get back to productivity. We have to get back to skills. And we basically have to find a way to lower the trade tensions. They are still there. They've already cost us more than 1% of the world's GDP growth. Uh, the, the, the rate of growth of trade went from 5.5% to practically flat. The rate of growth of investment went from 5 6% Did you voice to this, Angel, to the President of the United States? Were you able to corner Donald Trump at the espresso bar and say, look, this is the way it is for the OECD, if not for your America? We have said it in so many ways, written it, we've insisted, we published it, and basically saying the trade tensions are causing disruption. Why? Because they're causing uncertainty. Uncertainty kills investment. Investment, of course, is the seed of the growth of tomorrow. So basically, by, by creating the trade tensions, you uh, kill the investment, you kill the growth. How this of, is what has happened. How much of a headache is this? Does the U.S., and in particular, does the U.S. administration think that actually tariffs work? And will they use them against Europe? Uh, well, first of all, uh, I hope that they don't use them against Europe. And I think there's, when there's a will, there's a way. And yesterday, we found a way. The French... Uh, agreed to defer the action on their digital taxation law, and the Americans agreed to defer the actions on their 301, uh, you know, potentially the sanctions, etc. Uh, because it was not just a question against French champagne or French wine, it was a European right. against the United States issue eventually. So 
And what happened? They both agreed that they would give multilateral solutions a chance. That means to the OECD, the mandate to work on a final solution on digital taxation. So But Europe can't come together. So how can the OECD come together on this? Well, because we have 137 countries working on this solution, it's not just Europe. Yeah. And by that the way, like a nightmare. we had pretty strong support from practically every European country. And the U.S. have been participating rather enthusiastically. Why? Because there are a number of elements of the package that we're proposing on digital taxation that are very akin to the, uh, to the tax reform that was uh, done in the United States a couple of years ago. So you think you'll be able to broker a deal the, in, in the time that has, is... Francine, the, think of the option. Instead of a multilateral solution, which everybody will embrace, and they're all willing to sunset their yeah. own domestic laws and come to the multilateral solution, imagine 45, 50, whatever, different legislations with different uh, types of taxes, etc. And remember, Europe is not uh, on taxes. It's not Europe, Brussels, meaning the European Commission. Every, it's every country uh, on its own. So... I think that the alternative is so disruptive that they will all be trying very hard to get a deal. Within the, bu the bureaucracy of the OECD, do you have a mercantile division? I mean, are we back to mercantilism here? Every, every nation <laughs> We have for itself? a trade uh, division. Uh, we have a trade directorate, and we also have a director that deals with uh, enterprise and financial affairs. So yes, the answer is yes. But where's the, you're the great student of this. You taught at Monterey years ago. This is really important. Are we back to not multilateral, not back to bilateral, trilateral? Are we back to a mercantilistic every nation for itself? That's what I heard from the president when he gave that press conference here. How are we going to deal with things like international trade if not multilaterally? How are we going to deal with international investment flows, if not multilaterally? How do we deal with migration flows, if not multilaterally? How do you deal with things like climate change, are you if not Are you predicting that the President of the United States policies will impinge on U.S. Multi uh, multinational investment? Is he going to limit the investment of Johnson & Johnson abroad? It is already having an impact lowering the rate of growth of the United States, just like it is having an impact on China. So already we know the cost of uh, these trade tensions. Uh, they impinge directly on uh, the, well, uh, they create uncertainty, they create, they create uh, you know, uh, lower growth, they create lower jobs. So if we know the consequences, you know, and we know that there are better options, let's go in that direction. But have we reached peak multilateralism? Does it just go down from here? No, uh, you never reach peak multilateralism. Actually, I would say that today uh, we have to uh, defend multilateralism. We have to prove that this is the way, because otherwise uh, there's going to be a lot of pressure against multilateralism. There already is, and uh, we're trying to push it back. Anil Guri, as always, thank you so much for joining us. He is the OECD Secretary General. Anhel Guria was really eloquent off the microphone about the differential between the IMF view yeah. and the grimmer OECD view. I'm not sure if we share view. the views off the mic. 
No, no, but this is published. It's published okay. news that IMF is more optimistic right now than OECD and all our good guests on Bloomberg Surveillance. We go back home with a variance of opinion. Well, the guest coverage continues with Steve Paliuka, Bank Capital CEO. Stephen, great to have you with us. Hey, great to be here. Fantastic to have you with us in the studio on our final day here. Let's talk about that. How's the economy? You've got a series of businesses through the U.S. economy at the moment, worldwide for that matter as well. What do you see? You know, I, I agree with Solomon. It's kind of chugging along. Our businesses are doing well. Record, un record low unemployment in the U.S. Uh, we've, had, we've had kind of an oil dividend for six or seven years now. You know, oil is very cheap, energy is very cheap. Uh, and so planes are full, you know, restaurants are yeah. full, and things are going pretty well. What's the scale meter right now for Bain Capital? The, everybody's out there, we got to scale this, scale that. Define scale and what it means for you. Well, we, we really try to just do the best transactions available. We don't want to be the biggest, we want to be the best. Uh, we have uh, about $105 billion of assets today. We think that brings us an advantage because we're a global firm. We actually stem from a consulting firm. We weren't really financial people. And the belief was back in 1984, from starting with Bill Bain and Mitt Romney, in that we could take the consulting skills and really transform business. Right. This is a really important point. I'm going to state this, and you tell me if I'm wrong. You're not slaves to internal rate of return. You're looking at it from a different view. Explain that. Well, we try to take a long-term perspective, and, and the beauty of the model, and why the model, I think, generally has grown yeah. so fast, is that we don't have to have quarterly earnings. We can invest in new products, invest in new software, um, don't have that kind of pressure. So private equity has grown from, I don't know, 10 or 12 companies back when I started to 4,000 companies, and is a very significant factor in the economy right now, and has a real place in the economy because the business model is working the, of kind of owner operators working in concert with management to build great companies. That's the bottom line. Well, let's talk about the business model because it often comes under fire from a lot of people, as you know quite well, Steve. I'm just wondering how is, it is sustainable at the moment, given that there's so much more money in your industry compared to, say, where, there were, where we were 20, 30 years ago. Well, it's really interesting. I did an interview in 1989 yeah. where I, that was the exact same statement. Same question. Um, and then I did one in 99. It was the same statement. And 2000. Where do you think Farrell got it from? <laughs> <laughs> good, good learner. And it's a legitimate question. But what's happened from, in the industry is in, in, in 89, it was mainly USA. And then it expanded in, 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 the, in the 90s in, into global. And then it expanded in technology and medicine and other products. And so the, the ability to kind of put money to work and be global has expanded the industry. So I actually think there's a lot of money out there. Yeah. But the returns in private equity are still world class because the model has worked. Let's talk projects. Patient capital, getting together public-private in Italy cruise ships, Richard Branson, all sounds very exotic What are you fancy. talking about? This is something you guys are doing right well, now. Well, we're really excited. Uh, uh, Richard came to us about four years ago, uh, my partner Ryan Cotton and I, and uh, said he wanted to start a brand new cruise line. It was going to be different from everyone out there. And uh, we went on that journey with him. It's been a great partnership. And right now, the first boat being built in Italy is going to be delivered to the U.S. and will start sailing out of Miami. And this is in partnership in with the Italian government? Yes, the Italian government is into job creation, and these boats create a lot of jobs, and so there's a, they give you a financing package. So our 750 million equity plus a 2.2 billion financing package okay. has increased in general. What's going to be the architectural or experiential distinction of this boat versus the other boats that are the stereotype of the industry? Yeah, these are very unique boats. It's going to be uh, all adult, first of all, the only cruise line that's, that's all adult. 
and then it has that Richard Branson touch. Is this like Love Island on the water? I, it's I going to be know. amazing. There'll I don't be know if a... Steve knows what Love Island is. <laughs> I, don't I don't know what Love, Love Island is. Could you, you please explain what, to our radio and television what office Love Island is. <laughs> Love Island is a reality show. You don't want to go Never there, Never Love Island, but uh, uh, we are going to have a, a kind of a private island experience in, in Bimini with the cruise. And the boats are designed so there's huge outside yeah. spaces, hammocks, yeah. restaurants, clubs. It's going to be incredible. The, 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 the interview with you, Steve, is always with a shift of basketball at the end. And we talk light about it. But this is really serious. And I'm going to give an example here with some lightness in respect of Mr. Stern. The giant has died in basketball, but it's all of sport. John Farrow's AC Milan is so bad, they've got to go out and spend a lot, a lot of money yeah. on talent. Mr. Stern invented that with the NBA with Mr. Jordan. Explain what David Stern did to the economics and the aspiration of salary in the sport. Well, David was a huge visionary, uh, uh, not only in terms of introducing uh, the 50-50 player split and a salary cap, which is fair to everybody, uh, but being way out ahead of the game, uh, going to China you know, 14, 15 years ago, going to, going to Europe, having international offices. At that time, many of the NBA owners were saying, hey, we're spending a lot of money and there's no basketball. His view is basketball would be a world game. It would expand, it would expand viewership. And that vision became fulfilled. He was unique in that he, had, he was a visionary, but, but also a micromanager. So he was into every detail of the NBA to make sure it was running well, great for fans. And he'll be really missed. It was a sad day at his funeral on Tuesday. Steve, you're co-owner of the Celtics. Your friends are into European football. Mr. Henry over at Liverpool, Mr. Pallotta over at Roma in Italy. How much harder is it to make it in European football, just in terms of how the franchise is run compared to, say, something like basketball in America? Well, they've done a fantastic job uh, uh, over there, and, and Roma has really contended and hadn't contended before, and John Henry has a fantastic team that they've built. The structure is a lot more difficult than the USA sports structure because there really is not any salary controls, um, and... and you can get relegated, so somebody can pay a lot of money for a franchise and then be in the minor leagues. So it introduces a new level of risk. So you have to be really on top of those clubs and, and, and really uh, manage those well, tightly so you don't take too many risks. Should we relegate in American sports to provide a new tension? I don't think so. Uh, you know, the great news right now is in, in both American football in basketball, there's incredible parity. Yeah. So any, there's many teams that can win the NBA championship. I hope it's going to be the Celtics, yeah. but there are many teams really? that can win that championship. So, so now, there's, there's been competitive tension right. in these cities, and, and I think relegation is just a pressure that's not needed. The Patriots in the Super Bowl, how's it look? Not very good. <laughs> Next year. <laughs> can you no. give us a call on the Super Bowl coming up here in a bit? Uh, I, think, uh, I think that um, the 49ers... Look good, but Kansas City looks like a very, very strong team. And it's a younger team, and it's more dynamic. I mean, that game is changing with a gentleman from Kansas City, isn't Absol it? Absolutely. They, they look pretty devastating to me, and uh, uh, so it should be really fun. How will What's the style of basketball that's going to change? They're going to ram the uh, three-point line out further? I don't think so. I think the fans like it the way it is now. The, the big changes in the game have been introducing mo yeah. more mobility and ability to shoot that three, and it's been very exciting. Steve, that was a sports segment from Davos, Switzerland. It's Stephen Valley. Great to be here on SportsCenter. See the parquet floor here at Davos? It's a parquet floor. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.